The Words in Winter podcast is brought to you by Words in Winter, an annual literary and arts festival held in August each year in the Hepburn Shire and surrounding districts. You can find out more by going to wordsinwinter.com. Welcome. Can everyone hear me? Welcome to Slow Grain, Small is Beautiful, and I'm very privileged to be here with this group of amazing people. And I'm just going to start off with a Pablo Neruda poem that John actually um, sent this, uh, this morning. Um, this is why, bread, if you flee from mankind's houses, if they hide you away or deny you, if the greedy man pimps for you or the rich man takes you over, if the wheat does not yearn for the furrow and the soil, then, bread, we will refuse to pray. Bread, we will refuse to beg. We will fight for you instead, side by side with the others, with everyone who knows hunger. We will go after you in every river and in the air. We will divide the entire earth among ourselves so that you may germinate and the earth will go forward with us. Water, fire, and mankind fighting at our side. So, <laughs> I mean, I didn't write it, but it's a great one. But um, I think if, if we had to choose one food that represents what it is to be human, that would be bread. And, you know, the diverse varieties of grain across the world have sustained humans for centuries and are probably the reason that we decided to settle. Um, they say that it was either beer or bread that made us go, okay, we want to stay here and grow something so that we can ferment and make delicious things that make us feel good. But today, grain has a little bit of a bad rap, I would say, for many valid and also not so valid reasons. And I mean, the hyper-industrialized grain monoculture industry may have fed and sustained our increasing population of billions of people, but at great cost to our planet and the people on the planet and also the microbes on the planet and in our guts. So um, here in Australia, grain, especially wheat, is a big business, but there is a small group of passionate growers, millers, bakers, activists, and researchers who are changing the face of grains from soil to gut, from the revival of ancient native grains to milling, fermentation, and small-scale baking. They are building a functional alternative to the commodity grain, uh, to commodity grain. So I'd like to start by quickly introducing everyone. So right at the end over here, we have um, Stephen Walter from Barum Biodynamics in Manu, Victoria, um, who will have a lot to tell us about both conventional grain growing and the huge change that he made to his family's business in growing biodynamic grain and ancient grains. Welcome. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Um, yes. <laughs> And then right next to him, we have Courtney Young from Woodstock Flower in Berrigan, New South Wales. And she's a food activist and a grain activist, and also a miller of flour with a new stone ground, stone grinding. Yeah, which she will tell us more about. Welcome. And I should, I should also mention uh, Tanya Walt is here from Barum Biodynamics and Ian Cogden as well. <laughs> and next up we have Emily Sackled of Small World Bakery in Langhorn Creek, South Australia. She's just come all the way for this panel. We're very lucky. And um, she, recently there was a gathering of, 
of small grain of slow grain um, activists at, in Langhorn Creek, looking at is it mill today, bake tomorrow? Yeah, that's right. Um, welcome, Emily. Thanks for coming. <laughs> And then we have our very own Katie <laughs> from Twofold Bakehouse. And we also have Allison over here, Allison Scott. And, and um, they've started probably one of the first community supported bakeries in Australia and, and also have brought this lovely bread everyone will get to taste. And um, we're very excited to hear about that very innovative model. And right next. <laughs> Thanks, Katie. And, and then next, we have the eminent and legendary John Reed of uh, Redbeard Bakery who, uh, from in Trentham. And I mean, really, the, he needs no introduction. Um, John has been, you know, long, long and wild fermenting bread for a quarter of a um, century. <laughs> and is one of you know the great leaders in this movement and we're very excited to have him here thanks for coming john <laughs> and last but definitely not least is uh dr kate howell from the university of melbourne and she's also my phd supervisor and i'm very lucky and um kate is doing some amazing work with looking at um the microbial ecosystems of uh, sourdough starters as well as working with bruce pascoe on a um a kangaroo grass project so we'll hear more about that thanks for coming kate <laughs> Um, so I, I'm going to start off with the first question and then we'll kind of go from there. I, I mean, I just feel blessed that all these wonderful people have an opportunity to share what they're doing with you. And that's much needed because I think sometimes they don't get heard enough. So I'm going to start um, just quickly asking Courtney, what is slow grain and what is the local grain economy? Um, I think it means different things to different people, but for Ian and I, it's about... Um, deindustrializing grain, uh, bringing grain back into the community um, and using grain as a way to um, regenerate our landscapes, repeople our landscapes and um, yeah, support family farms. Um, so a local grain economy is where, um, just like a local food system, um, we know where the grain is coming from. It's not all going into this um, national collective pool, it's um, diverse, um, regional, um, yeah, we can source where the grain is coming from, from the bakery to the brewery, um, yeah, throughout the community. But I, I'm sure people have different interpretations of what it means as well. Thanks, Courtney. And um, I'd like to go to Steve, um, Steve now. Um, could you tell us a bit about the change and the shifts that you've seen in your lifetime and in the decision that you made to, to go into um, biodynamics as well? Okay. Um, yeah, I've seen some big changes with the uh, broad acre. Sorry, there we go. So yeah, I've seen some big changes in broadacre cropping. Um, there's certainly a lot more, a lot more chemicals used now. Um, yeah. 
Can we have a mop to aisle three, please? Hello. Okay. Um, yeah, so I've seen some yeah, big changes in broadacre agriculture, uh, mainly with, um, well, fungicides were hardly ever used on cereals when I was uh, growing up and nowadays it's pretty well applied every year. More insecticides and um, yeah, a lot more urea. So yeah, definitely less, less focus on the health of uh, the consumer, it's really just about yield. Um, so, oh, and uh, what pushed you, pushed you to change over to biodynamics? And even during that time, I know that Tanya has mentioned to me that um, you used to you grew some grains that we would now call ancient grains that were difficult to sell at the time, and now that's sort of shifting. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sort of your, why you went into biodynamics, and then what the changes you've seen since then? Sure. Um, yeah, there's a well, there's a few reasons. Um, I've always been interested in organic food growing and the health of the soil. That's been been in the back of my mind, you know, for as long as I can remember. I was never comfortable using all the chemicals, so as soon as I got the chance to um, run the farm my way, I pretty well changed over straight away. Uh, yeah, big, you see big changes in the, in the soil uh, and yeah, it comes through in the quality of the food, I'm, I'm sure of that. Um, what was the other guy? Oh, the, the ancient grains, I, I think it, well, I've, I, I started growing wheat in my mother's veggie garden when I was about five or six and I've planted a crop every year since. And I used to make my own implements and stuff to, to work up half the veggie garden. So I've always enjoyed growing things and I like you know, growing unusual things. So um, when the opportunity to grow spelt come along, I, I yeah, grabbed that with both hands. And um, Coruscant was one that I played around with a fair while ago. Um, must have been just a bit too early because I couldn't find a market for it. So I ended up just giving my seed away to someone who wanted to grow it. So hopefully that's um, still treating them well. And, you know, um, this bread that we're going to share with, well, that everyone's kindly brought to share with everyone is 50% Coruscant. Yeah. So, and you'll taste the difference. And I think that you're right. You guys were pioneers. You're very early and sometimes that's difficult, you know. Um, thanks, Steve. Um, so, and Courtney, I, could you quickly tell us a little bit about Woodstock flower and, and sort of the evolution of Woodstock flower? Yes, yeah, so it's um, my partner in his family's farm, um, fourth generation now, um, and Ian's father um, at Woodstock, they made the transition to being certified organic um, over 20 years ago. Um, and in the last two years, Ian and I have uh, decided that we wanted to be more involved in the farm and um, we saw that the grain was something that wasn't 
really being um, appreciated. Like we'd get the organic premium, um, but we didn't know where it was going. Um, we didn't know who was eating it. And we thought um, that that's a really great opportunity. Like everyone wants to know where their meat comes from. Um, everyone's all about seasonal fruit and veg, but at the time no one was really interested in where their grain was coming from. So we kind of, um, experimented with a little desktop flour mill um, and realized that there was a really um, strong demand for uh, regional grains and local whole, uh, whole grain stone ground flour. Um, so it's kind of grown from there and it's um, been a way for us to um, exist within a family farm um, and kind of take more control over the supply chain and make it more viable as well. Awesome. Um, and can you quickly tell us about your new mill? Because that's very <laughs> exciting. Because, I mean, I met Courtney when she was doing the Slow Food Melbourne Farmers Market and they had a stall there and they were like literally <laughs> hand milling everything. <laughs> and um, and then you guys have sort of taken a break to develop that part of the business. So Yeah, so, so we, um, we met um, with a couple of bakers, John being one of them, and they all kind of were yelling at us to buy this new American stone mill. So we did. Um, it's de it was uh, developed by Andrew Hain and who was the other bloke? Blair Marvin. Blair Marvin. Oh, oh the, sorry. The, Andrew um, uh, Fuller. Yeah, uh, Fulton. Fulton, sorry. Um, in Vermont in the States. Um, and they have been really instrumental in relocalizing grains um, and supporting their local farmers. Um, and we just couldn't find anything like it in Australia. So we imported this um, stone mill um, and it allows us to uh, mill the bulk of what we grow on Woodstock um, and it produces a really beautiful um, whole grain flour. Um, and Emily has the same mill down in Langhorn Creek. Um, and it's really revolutionizing the way we look at whole grain stone ground flour and across the world, like it's, it's getting a lot of attention. Um, yeah. Thanks. Um, and Emily, could you tell us a bit about what you're doing at um, Small World Bakery? Because I understand that you're milling on site as well as baking. And I think that's very unusual in Australia. Is that right? Uh, yeah, well, quite a few bakers um, in the craft um, space do mill their own flour. Um, I don't know that there are any, very many that grow their own grain. Um, that's something that in 2015 um, I read a really great book and it changed the way I thought about grain. Um, I'd been a chef for five minutes. I'd worked in retail food. I'd been a cheesemaker. And in those spaces there was a lot of talk about um, the provenance of the raw material, um, the milk and the um, that uh, was for the use for the cheese making and um, the fruit and the vegetables. There was a really big movement, um, particularly driven by Jane Ab Adams and, and the um, farmers market movement, which has been extraordinarily successful in um, helping customers to understand where their food comes from and how it's grown and have direct conversations with the growers. But um, it had never occurred to me that um, that could happen for grain. And I read a book by a chef called Dan Barber in New York who um, wrote about hamon and uh, sea bass farming in Spain, which um, ended up as a byproduct producing more and better sea mullet than 
the bass that ended up being more um, successful and popular with chefs. There are all these byproducts that people discover taste better. And um, ancient grains and historic grains can be said um, to have the same uh, trajectory where um, modern wheats have been developed uh, to be adaptive to our Australian climate since 1880 and um, that was really a direct result of William Farrer in 1901 released the first Australian bread wheat called Federation. He'd managed to reduce the, um, the time in between um, flowering and grain fill um, down to um, many fewer weeks than um, the grains that were uh, being used by farmers and millers and bakers from the Northern Hemisphere and therefore were falling to rust and diseases and fungal diseases. And simply by reducing that um, time span, um, he developed disease-resistant varieties. Now, the disease is continually evolving and it um, gains um, resistance to the... Uh, it unlocks that, that genetic propensity to um, be resistant to the disease, so it's a continual process. But way back, falling by the wayside, were all these really delicious grains and wheats um, that were being used, their genetics were being used in natural breeding um, to produce modern wheats. But um, we, my husband and I decided after reading this book, which detailed these sort of programs in the Northern Hemisphere, particularly in the States, we'd give it a go in um, South Australia good wheat growing area, usually softer wheats where we are, not um, prime hard, which is um, more common um, probably up in the wheat belt a little bit further north. Thought we'd give it a go, um, being fully aware that you can be, um, you can experience paralysis by analysis, as Costa the Gardener says. So we thought, right, so I'd dive right in. So found out where to get the wheat. Uh, varieties from and we were um, made requests to the Australian Grains Gene Bank where all this material is held really for the future so that these um, genetic material can be used in um, if there's any kind of adverse um, climate or um, even in the case of Syria war. Um, this is a library that um, if you make a request you're granted seed and but they come in packets of 100. So in 2015, we put the first lot in of 35 varieties and um, next year, um, if it does rain, we will be um, harvesting enough that we can put through the, our own mill. Part of that growing our own grain was um, to try to find a way of um, milling beautiful flour and really doing justice to this grain. And it just took us way over into a whole grain um, scenario in baking that we hadn't even considered because whole grain flour to us was always pretty dry, tasteless on the rancid side and why would you? So we decided um, to travel and find out what the big deal was in the Northern Hemisphere and that's what we did, came back and um, while our wheats have been growing and we've been replanting everything because um, we still need to bulk it up, we um, imported a mill at the same time as Courtney and Ian without knowing them. <laughs> but it goes to show this is a movement and it's happening across um, the Northern Hemisphere and we're bringing it down to the Southern Hemisphere. Um, 
and uh, we're continually to bake. We're continuing to bake sourdough bread and um, crackers. I brought some crackers, um, using more and more of this fresh milled flour um, by proportion, taking it fairly slowly, but really realizing, as Courtney said, this flour is really great and it's usable and it doesn't require a lot of tweaking. It's very um, very fine and delicious and the freshness of this flour is pretty amazing when it comes out of the oven in people's home bakes when they come back and tell us we've given them a bit of flour they come back and tell us far out my house has never smelled so good <laughs> awesome thank you so much it's it's amazing what you're doing and um we'll talk about it a bit more um i'm quickly gonna jump to john <laughs> we'll get to you okay um because um kind of to segue into the ancient grains you know because we've been talking about wheat as in something that was brought here um but john would you like to tell us a bit about um sort of the native grains that you've been working with and i know several people are doing it but yeah yeah sure so um a couple of years ago um i met bruce pasco uh and had been heading out to malacuta to work with him um, trying to develop um, Australian native grains. Uh, started with kangaroo grass, we're working on Australian millet. Uh, there is um, enormous potential, I think, uh, to achieve a whole lot of things with native grains. You know, one um, is a political thing that, you know, we all want to see, and that is Australian Aboriginal people actually um, given sovereignty back of this land, so to have any part to play in in bringing, um, yeah, working with any part of Makarata is really important to me. So um, I see it as a political move, and so does Bruce. But more importantly, I think we've, you know, what, at, at a really basic level, is those Australian grasses, and there's like something like a 167 different species that were um, were grown uh, um, in with Aboriginal agriculture, uh, were harvested, stooped, threshed, um, stored, um, baked um, into yeah, cake or bread um, for the last 65,000 years. The, you know, the oldest grindstone we, we have is that one out of the bottom end of Kakadu. Um, which is 65,000 years old. So we, we are by far the oldest um, grain milling society on earth by three times as long as any other tradition um, and bread makers as well. So it, it's, a, it's, a, it's something Bruce has you know, been telling people to be proud of. Um, and I think it's, you know, I think part of going forward together is to find ways to um, share our inheritance. So um, this is a really special part of our inheritance and sharing food has always been a good way for Aussies to get on with um, people from other cultures. So uh, yeah, look, I'm, I'm, I've got all sorts of hopes. Um, we, we, we'll see how we go. Uh, it's very embryonic. Um, the projects are all just starting up and just starting to get funded and we've got researchers doing a whole of good work to try and bring it to fruition. The, the beauty of Australian grain, of course, is it's incredibly drought tolerant naturally. 
it's it's designed for the Australian landscape, um, and the potential is huge. Aboriginal people have been growing and harvesting it for a long time, and so if we can work back through the old journals, hopefully we can find out how they did it um, and learn a hold of ancient wisdom at the same time as sort of going forward with this um, project that we call Australia. Thank you, John. Um, wow, <laughs> that's quite sobering. Um, before we um, kind of go more into the research side, which we will, um, I just wanted Katie to talk about her project at, um, with Alison at Twofold Bakehouse, which is doing community-supported baking. So would you like to tell us a bit about that model? Because that's sort of the distribution side of things, you know, sort of the baking and the distribution. How do we get that message to people with taste and and product? Yeah. Um, so what we are in the midst of setting up is a community-supported bakery. Um, it's very small. Uh, it's in a back garden. And it involves um, a wood-fired oven where we can bake loaves that we know where they came from. Um, the whole business model, I guess, is based on connection and reconnection. Um, lots has been lost, I guess, to link back to what John is talking about. Um, and what we can do and achieve with a single loaf of bread is actually very, very, very important. <laughs> um, we are trying to bring together the community of Dalesford um, through baking. <laughs> and the idea is that it's not a walk into a bakery, buy a loaf of bread when you feel like it model. It's a, I am going to subscribe to what you are offering and what you believe in. Um, and I am there with you along the journey. Um, so it's a very great way of doing business because um, we know the family farms um, where we get our flour from um, and we know the people that are buying our bread because they come to our bakery in the back garden. The idea is that they will come once a week pick up their bread um, and do that for a, a term. Um, so you're subscribing to, it's getting rid of the convenience side of shopping, I guess, and turning a convenient industrialized society, a way of being into a a friendly, personalised, healthy, nutritious journey and full circle. It's a full circle. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> and I guess the other part of it too is taste because, you know, that that's actually what humans are led by, taste. And, and we've lost the ability to even taste what good bread is, I think, you know. We, we, um, our tongues have become deadened a little bit. Um, what do you think of that? 
oh, it's sensational. And everyone should definitely try and get a little bit of that. <laughs> that's, that's what you're going to be selling. Yeah. It's perfect. <laughs> um, I, we'll come back and we'll talk about this specific bread in a minute. I'm just going to go over here to Kay. <laughs> um, so uh, could you tell us a little bit about how you kind of got involved in, um, in the movement from your perspective as an academic? Because you and I are not growers, millers, or <laughs> um, and why, you know, you feel also, tell us a bit about your projects and why you also feel that's important as part of this movement. Yeah. Thanks, Min. So I, I met Min, actually, at a conference, which has ended up being a bit of a, a turning point for my, I guess, my, my personal satisfaction with the research and the teaching that I do, but also um, has spawned about 20 new research projects in areas that I, I couldn't have imagined. So this was a gastronomy symposium, which was held at Melbourne University and the William Anglis Institute in downtown Melbourne at the end of 2016. I met Min, <laughs> I met Bruce Pascoe and I met a wide range of other producers and anthropologists and I, it was a really exciting um, step out of the lab for me. I've been a, a scientist for as long as I can remember. I, I'm very comfortable in the lab in my white, white lab coat and a pipetta in my hand. You know, this is, this is a world I feel really comfortable in. But I think similar to what John was saying about listening to Bruce Pascoe talk and reading his book and then reading the books around this idea of uh, Aboriginal ab agriculture and Aboriginal food and it struck a very deep chord in, in me, my personal life and the way that I feel about myself as an Australian and my society but I, I realised very quickly that I can, I can participate in this field, I can, I can do something. I, I take my, my role at the university really seriously, you know, I'm a, I'm a researcher and I I uh, try to be a very ethical researcher, but I'm also a teacher. That's one of the primary things I do. And I have every year bright-eyed, intelligent, incredibly motivated students come through. So I love the opportunity to talk to them about these things as well and open their eyes to a, a new way of seeing agriculture, which in Australia is, uh, you know, Northern Hemisphere agriculture, isn't it? We bought everything here and we've been teaching people through institutions like Melbourne University, through the Dukey Agricultural College, um, how, to be a good, how to be a good farmer. And I know Courtney and her graduates also from that degree, but I, I really see my, my role as a, as a way to, I guess, open the eyes of, of students coming through, but then also to contribute to the research. And so I'm really um, excited to, to meet Emily tonight. We've only ever corresponded um, by email and by post. And one of the things I was really excited about after spending a year on sabbatical in the south of France was that um, working with a, a colleague there, uh, Delphine Sicard, and she was looking at these bakers in France where they grow the grain, mill the grain, make the bread and sell the bread all in the same place. And when she looked at the yeasts and bacteria in the bread of these bakers, they were quite unique, you know, very unique. And in fact, she, she was able to describe a new species of yeast to science, is Kazakhstania yeasts, which was really exciting. And something you go, you know, we should look at Australia, you know, what's there, what's there? You know, we never talk about Australian yeasts. We don't, we don't talk about Australian yeast for making Australian foods. 
to bring it back to the idea of this kangaroo grass bread as well. So um, I guess my, my personal motivation has been along these lines. You say we have a unique environment, we have a unique place in the world and we, uh, we've ignored it and I think it's time for that to stop. Is that enough? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, now I'm just going to, you know, put some questions out to everyone and also if, you know, if you feel inspired to, you know, go on a, a certain line, please go ahead. But, um, well, actually, this bread, can you, t um, well, either Alison, if you want to talk about the bread, maybe, yes. because it kind of combines yes. everybody. Yes. So um, this bread is community bread. So it's made with flour from these people and 50% oh, Spitfire, 50% Corazon. Um, the starter was your rye and your spelt and the top is your oats there. And um, the salt we, we got from the Pink Lake coming back from your, from your place so and it's the first time I made it so and it's unbelievably light and tender crumb so but it's a hundred percent stone ground by these guys yeah so it's it's all it's a hundred percent all in home yeah I was really excited to make it because you don't often get to share your bread with the people who grew it yeah. 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 And the people who grew my knowledge and um yeah, the experience of it all. So yeah, that's my bread. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Alison. Um I guess what we can, yeah, you know, oh, I'm gonna cry. <laughs> but, um, but I wanted to ask, what 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 are the obstacles that you guys have faced, and how did you kind of overcome them together as a as a community of you know growers, millers, and bakers? I've really appreciated having um, exactly. Um, <laughs> she's been. Um, a real, I don't know what the word is. Um, if you, like all of us, I think there's something about bakers, they're very generous. Um, Ian and I kind of got into the baking community through Instagram um, and they're all like sharing photos and sharing how they, their different techniques with their bread baking, but it, it extends beyond bread and um, Emily and Chris have like really welcomed us um, even though um, they don't have to, there's nothing in it for them. They've been really open in helping us set up our flour mill because they've been going through a, um, a similar process. Um, so I think having this um, kind of virtual community, like the internet has been really um, unifying for us, um, especially because we live, you know, three to four hours away from Dalesford anyway. Um, I really appreciate having um, our bakers that have been like supportive from the beginning and um, kind of joining us on this journey. Like they know that we don't really know what we're doing, um, but John still buys flour from us, even though he thinks <laughs> that we should be growing a different wheat or, you know, like he's just like so supportive, <laughs> so supportive of us. <laughs> 
there there is a big time factor in all of it too, like the learning part of it and also growing the wheat <laughs> and having the the um, desirable strains available to, to plant. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think um, uh, it's one thing that we've been able to do. Um, Chris and I were... were um, able to take a year off our baking after baking for eight years and um, in two separate trips we went overseas and we met up with uh, people who were doing something that we thought we might want to do and um, it, we had uh, neither of us um, in the 25 years we were full-time working in our various fields were never able to do something like that so and we don't imagine there are very many people who can do that so when we returned, so many people had welcomed us um, and spent time with us and helped um, give us ideas. You can never be prescriptive about what to do. You can only share your own experience and hope that that um, can be applied in a um, in the relative setting. But um, we both looked at each other, Chris and I, and vowed that we would do the same for other people because ultimately if these products are never t tasted by you people they the whole movement dies in the ass so we need to get this out um, into as many people as possible and get to keep the conversations going so that um, it becomes a viable business for all of these people so it's a drive it really does need um, a fair bit of work and we host workshops probably once a year they're pretty full-on <laughs> good fun um, so that's one way that we overcome problems is by a lot of community building and sharing but it is over distance and it is a lot of email and a lot of phone calls and um, it's reciprocated every single time every single time people come back and help out um, and that would possibly lead into the farming side with Steve and Tanya um, you would have been um, one of the first businesses possibly doing what you're doing um, and on I would say a, a larger scale than than a lot of other biodynamic um, suppliers but still a medium-sized scale compared to the commodity um, producers for the commodity market. So I imagine there were some challenges in um, equipment and um, distribution and transport. I'd love to hear about that. Oh, thanks. On the other part of Bar and Biodynamics, and um, we've been, well, I've been 30 years involved, and I'd love to talk about the challenges because um, we live in, in a, uh, the wheat belt, which is conventional through and through. So at the moment, we're listening to all sorts of debates about glyphosate, etc. And we're just, basically, we're just shutting up and staying out of it. But it's a bit of a... It's a bad week for Monsanto. It's a bad week for farming. They're not, they're not coping with it very well either. So anyway, I bought two documents which were quite important to us as, as we were um, changing. 17 years I was as a conventional farmer and at that time a part of whatever you deliver to at the time was the Australian Wheat Board and the Australian Barley Board, those levies that you pay go and fund the grains research development people and they're all, this is, this is like chalk. And then this is the National Standard for Organic and Biodynamic Produce, Standard 3.7, and this is like cheese. So this is full of how to get yield and 
and all sorts of ways of using chemicals, all sorts of ways of how research will, will help find a new rust-free wheat, etc., and the use of um, the new CRISPR technique and, and genetically modified, they're really pushing that to the, the normal conventional farmer and really talking that up as, as a real possibility. On the other hand, you've got the National Organic Standard, which is 68 pages of how to look after the environment. So this has got nothing about profitability, nothing about yield whatsoever. They don't care if you don't make a profit. So this is about getting carbon back into the soil. So you can imagine living in our community where you're all small and tight-knit and and your neighbours are conventional, to suddenly not deliver to the silo or get invited to the uh, footy trip at the weekend, which is um, put on by the, the local chemical company, it's quite a big shift. So suddenly you don't want to look at your own crops because they're going to look different. So they're going to have a diversity through them and weeds and for Steve and I, we just looked at each other and said, we're not going to care about what anyone thinks about thinks about us. So we're still taking that and just minding our, our own business through the, the new um, uh, uproar about Monsanto and glyphosate at the moment. So we forged ahead and, and it was a lot of infrastructure to be purchased. So there's um, lots of 140 tonne silos which all have to be paid for and there's everything stays on the farm basically until it drip feeds into the into the organic industry and sometimes there's an oversupply and we've got to sit on that for quite some time but we've also got to keep it weevil free so all of these guys who are organic as well they're basically doing a lot of cleaning and a lot of looking and a lot of checking because there's no going through with with a pesticide and there's no going through a fumigation so it's all carefully monitored and that that requires quite a lot of work and it's not what every conventional farmer wants to do so um, we've got to read it and everything changes every year so you need to be pretty physically fit too. Um, so we were in an industry where we didn't know where it was ending up and now we know our customers, family, maybe their food intolerances and how many kids they've got. So it's quite a change but we love that and it's, it's been very challenging, I can assure you of that. <laughs> Thanks. And can I just add that these guys have driven something like a 400k round trip or something to be here tonight. <laughs> so we're very grateful and you know every time you guys come to the market always a smile on your face and all the customers love you and you know people are seeing you so. <laughs> um, on that note I think we might open up to the audience for some questions if you guys are happy with that. Yeah. Um, so please. <laughs> okay. In the back. Thanks for that guys. That was great. I've got a question uh, which is sort of shows how green I am in this field, but it, it kind of relates to um, spraying and that kind of thing. It's probably easier to stick with um, Steve's example of fungicide. Um, obviously it does something, right? So people are using this because uh, there's an issue. Um, if, if, if like a larger farmer stopped using it, 
could you kind of go into detail of what would happen to the aircraft? And similarly, given you guys don't use it, do you, do you see a problem with your crop that they're trying to eradicate that, that product? Yeah, um, thanks for the question. Um, yeah, basically the, uh, fung the fungus diseases are just a symptom of a sick soil. Uh, like I said, when I was younger, there was a very rare occasion you'd spray your, your wheat crops when the conditions were bad, but now a lot of the time it's just a prevention. Um, same with insecticides, so I'll just put it in a tag mix just in case there's insects there. Um, yeah, I think there is more rust and fungus diseases getting in the cereal crops just because they're pushing more urea on and trying to get more yield. So if, if they did stop cold turkey, they'd uh, probably suffer big yields. Um, a lot of the trouble is they've invested so much in the crop that they want to protect it. So it becomes a bit of a uh, merry-go-round and it spend more on it to protect it and they've spent more so they want to protect it again and it goes on and on. So. I've, you know, I've had lots of examples where our neighbours have been getting wiped out, especially in the, the uh, pulse crops, which are really susceptible to um, fungal diseases, and yeah, we just don't have any troubles at all. It's, it's just a soil health issue. Can I say something too? Um, I'd like to um, talk about diversity in your um, farm as well. Um, not that we have our own farm, We've, we're um, growing our grain on um, another farmer's spare field, we're renting it. Um, but one thing we, um, only on our very small scale, and I've seen it on bigger farms as well, my dad was a farmer, um, if you do have a lot of different varieties of one crop or if you rotate um, perhaps more than three year rotations, perhaps more to five or seven years, um, you're mitigating risk but you're also um, breaking cycles and you're also feeding the soil and, and making a healthier environment. But um, having um, a three-year rotation with um, vast fields of one, one variety, it's, it is profitable, it is efficient, and um, it's easy to harvest and it's easy to sell, but um, you're perhaps going to be um, coming up against more disease pressure. I guess you would see it in your veggie garden at home as well sort of better to have things a bit mixed around and um, introduce better environments for the predatory wasps and um, some of the other um, beneficial insects and things. Oh yeah, I was, I was <laughs> going to say from a scientific perspective, a monoculture is always a bad idea. Um, and you can look at that at whatever scale you like. Yeah. You know, a monoculture forest, it's a forest, you know, of, of plantation, a monoculture of yeasts in a saccharomyces service. I know it's not your favourite, John, but I still love it. <laughs> um, but any time you have a monoculture, you're sort of setting up a situation that it presents problems maybe un with unintended consequences and I think you know the way that we've dealt with that as a scientific society is to come up with you know targeting chemicals that will do that and fungicides and herbicides are one but then you know antibiotics are another so you know you you set up a situation where there, there ends up being a problem with a monoculture and diversity in whichever ecological literature you read is absolutely provides resilience. Mm -hmm.
And I guess that includes the gut, which we're probably not going to get so into today. We could, we could <laughs> but you know, we don't have heaps of time. Let's take more questions. Yes. some really exciting news to, to text to John today. I wanted to, to tell him about his his starter culture. So making a sourdough, of course, is using a, uh, a slurry or a mix or part of the previous uh, fermentation that you then use to inoculate again. And, and if you look around the world, you know, a, a sourdough starter can have between one to two yeasts and two to three species of bacteria. And so there's a nice catalogue of what they are now. And I've been trying to add to them from an Australian perspective. So I've had the honour of having a look at Emily's starter and, and also John's starter to see what's there. And it's, it's, I was, it's been really exciting. You know, there's, uh, each of them have two different yeast species in there some of which I think have been isolated for the first time in Australia, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and I think what is really exciting and, and from a, a flavour perspective, as you brought up, is understanding how those yeasts and bacteria live within the ecosystem of, of the, the dough and how they interact with one another with the compounds that they're producing and how they're interacting with the gluten in the, in the bread and the carbohydrates to produce flavor. And I've got some beautiful graphs. I can show you the differences that having, you know, more diversity, more microbial diversity in the starter will increase the flavor of a bread. But I guess good sourdough is a fantastic flavor. It's, that's where it is. But interestingly, John, oh, well, interestingly, John doesn't like to use the term sourdough as much. And maybe if you, can you explain a bit about that, John? And, and that might, well, we'd like you to try some of this bread firstly, but I mean, you know. Um. Here we go. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm, 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 I'm sort of yeah, I'm sort of got no idea where to start here. Uh, yeah, look, uh, I had a I got a I got a Google review the other day for Redbeard, and um, it's always a good place to start. Yeah, Google review, and and it it bought. You know, it, it, the, the review basically said, yeah, nice food, but, you know, bloody expensive. Um, and we get those, you know, regularly. Um, and, and I guess, um, you know, compared to an ordinary bakery, you know, we are, we are more expensive. The, 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 the review was spot on. Um, and I couldn't, you know, really argue it. I had to agree, yes, we are more expensive, but, you know, um, I guess what I what I'd like to, you know, what I would have liked to have done is pick the person really hard <laughs> and say, but hey, you know, have you thought of the cost of when you go to the regular bakery um, and you support the commodity wheat system, and you support the industrial ag system, and you support the devastation of this country? 
agriculturally, um, have you thought about you know what you're doing to you know your um, future generations here? And it's just a, current agriculture is an abomination. Um, I, I'm going to just put a little plug in for Tammy Jonas. Can you stand up? <laughs> Tammy. Um, Tammy needs no introduction. She is just a goddamn legend. Um, she not only is the president of the AFSA, but um, the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance, which I think is one of the best things for this country has had. Um, but uh, she's also giving a talk uh, with a guy called Charles Massey. Now, Charles Massey has just written a book called The Call of the Rewarbler, and it sets out what farmers like Stephen Tanya Courtney are doing in terms of the new agriculture. So we call it regenerative ag is the, is the term we've chosen to use. And that um, basically speaks to trying to build relationship again um, um, in food systems, but also speaks to trying to build soil ecology. Um, and also it, it's about you know, resting control and I'm, I, you know, Kate's going to hate me, but I, I think it's time. I think it's time for a revolution. We have to take the food back from the bloody scientists and the and the corporations. Hold on, no, John, you've got to work with. The, no, you, you've got to. I think the point is you need to work with the scientists, and that's what Kate's trying to do: is say, you know, let's bring, bring in something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Look, I, I, I'm not standing behind food scientists. You know. <laughs> I think the the mere fact that you can create a loaf of bread in 90 minutes is some kind of abomination. I don't. I actually don't know how they do it. High speed mixing. I keep on trying to get to the tip top bakery to have a look, but you know, it just um, like bread itself is it's a, some kind of miraculous transformation. I started baking bread at home, and it was bizarre to me that it worked. You know, it's like wow, how how is this possible that something you put in comes out just so delicious and. And I was thinking about this a little bit before when you were talking about, you know, the, the role of knowledge in this, this new movement. And bakers, I think, have historically taken a really important role in a, in a community and in a society. They're, they've made sure people are fed when they couldn't feed themselves. They've been, you know, it's the perfect nexus between where the food comes from and where it goes, you know. It's been, always been an important hub in a community. Um, so I'm not saying that scientists should take that role at all, but I, I do think that evidence-based knowledge is really important and um, I, I work for that, you know, daily in, in my work and I, I think that good contributions by thoughtful, honourable scientists are, are really important and I think, I think it can working together with a community, with traditional knowledge um, and forming a, you know, a system of, of participation can only help solve these really complex problems that we've created for ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to say thank you to everyone for coming and it's so great to see a room full of people and it just means that the word is getting out the taste is getting out you know <laughs> and um, thank you to everyone for you know being part of this and I hope that this is just the start of having more 
conversation, more events, more sharing. Thank so, you, man. Thanks, guys. And can I, can I just thank Min very much? Um, and, and also for our fabulous audience, I'm looking around to see your faces and I see just so much um, excellence already um, in, in terms of food production, in terms of people in the room that I'm looking at. Um, there's already, there are pioneers here in this room that, that should be up on the stage. Actually, I feel sort of in, 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 in amazing company in this room. So together, I, I reckon we can forge a new system. Thank you for listening to the Words in Winter podcast. Words in Winter is a literary festival that runs every year in the cold winter months of August in Dalesford, Victoria, Australia. If you'd like to find out more about the festival, please go to wordsinwinter.com. If you'd like to hear more episodes, you can find them at wordsinwinter.com forward slash podcasts.